We began our service with the words of the song, These Are the Days of Elijah, because we've been following the story of Elijah from 1 Kings. And you'll remember the last two weeks, first of all, we had the wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and Elijah coming to them and simply saying that there will be no rain. And then Elijah taken away by God into the wilderness where he had to learn to trust God to supply all his needs at the brook and then as he stayed in the house of the widow. And now we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, the first 15 verses as Elijah returns to the scene and we'll find out what happens. Let us hear the word of God. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout follower of the Lord. When Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to the springs and valleys, Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land that they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go and tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? Asked Obadiah. That you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And wherever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord? What I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He won't kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Shall we pray? Father, we come to this story 
um, from the book of Kings, and we would ask that as we, as we consider it together, that you would speak to us, that these words from so long ago might become your word for us today by your spirit. Amen. It's a great story, um, the book of Elijah. And in, in one sense, we, we've taken a little pause here because Elijah's about to go to Ahab and I've cut the story short because this first little introduction has so much to teach us that I want to examine this morning. If you're watching on YouTube, you might want to pause it at this point and just read that passage again from 1 Kings 18, 1 to 15 before we begin. It'd been a long time. It'd been three years, three awful years for the people who lived under King Ahab. Three years where there had been drought. And drought meant famine. It meant food shortages. It would have touched everyone. It touched everyone from the royal court where they were struggling to even feed the horses to a widow and her son in the north that we met last week in chapter 17. A drought. A famine meant misery and death. It was compounded by two other things. First of all, the government was awful. They really didn't care. The king who was supposed to look after the people of Israel, supposed to be their shepherd, was more concerned with feeding the horses than feeding the people. And on top of that, a third problem. Outright persecution. Jezebel wasn't just a worshipper of Baal. She had led the whole people astray. She and Ahab had worshipped these awful gods and now she was trying to kill the prophets, the only left followers that there were left of the Lord. It was tough times to be a believer in Israel at that point. I suppose as we look at this story, we might immediately identify it with some of the tough things that we're going through. The pandemic also has brought misery like a drought, it touches everybody, bringing death and suffering. But I would suggest that the comparison probably needs to stop there. Whatever we think of the governments that we have in, in Scotland and the UK, they've done something about it. They've not always got it right. But I think one of the things that's to the credit of our governments and indeed to the credit of our whole society is that what we have done is we've said through all of this we want to try to protect those that are most vulnerable. Many folk have sacrificed and suffered, locked themselves away, stayed distant from other folk to keep safe those who are most at risk. And even as we roll out this vaccine that brings hope, we have prioritized those who are in most need, those who are on the front line, those who are most vulnerable. I think that's something that we should give thanks for, that that's at the root of where our society is. It is perhaps even part of that Judeo-Christian heritage that we have that says that the weakest must be put first and valued. And the other thing is we're not being persecuted. Sure, it's frustrating that our churches are closed, but they're closed for a good reason, not because people hate Christians and want to destroy them. Sometimes we're tempted to see this as some sort of persecution, but let's remember in the days of Elijah, it wasn't that the believers couldn't meet for a few months, they were hiding in caves in fear of their lives. That's real persecution. 
In fact, that's been the mark of the church in many times, hasn't it? From the ancient Christians hiding in the catacombs from Nero to the police who might knock on the door in a communist regime to find the church that's in hiding. If you want to see real persecution today, have a look at the website of an organization like Open Doors and the stories of the many millions who face suffering, death, and violence for their faith. We are not being persecuted in the UK today, as difficult as it can sometimes seem to be a believer. I'm very grateful that our governments have said that they will reopen our churches as soon as it is safe to do so. So the days of Elijah, the days of Ahab, were difficult days. A natural disaster, an utterly corrupt government, and acts of persecution. And in the middle of that, God sends Elijah. Elijah is God's strongman. He comes and he says, no rain, and there's no rain for three years. He comes to take on Ahab and Jezebel. He will later bring fire from heaven on Mount Carmel in a bold confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And so this is the story of a strong man. But I don't know about you, but strong men sometimes present me with a problem. Because I'm not one. I've never been fed by ravens. I've never been called to confront a king that might want to take my life. I'm just me, ordinary me, living my life and doing what I can. How does this relate to me? In fact, sometimes strong Christians can leave other Christians with a sort of uh, ambiguous feeling. Their testimony is great. It's fantastic to see what God does through famous Christians. But at the same time, they can leave us feeling quite inadequate, quite small, quite like we're spectators in a sport that we really can't play. The Bible deals with it in these chapters in two ways. First of all, as we saw last week, and we'll see again in a few weeks' time, Elijah is not always strong. In fact, he's someone who has to learn to trust God. He sometimes is a bit paranoid. He sometimes gets quite depressed. At one point, he simply runs away. He's so afraid. But the other thing that the Bible does in this passage, I think, is introduce us to someone who seems a lot more ordinary, a lot more relatable. And that someone is Obadiah. I suppose we might entitle this sermon, These Are the Days of Obadiah Rather Than Elijah. Obadiah is not a prophet, he's a civil servant. He's got a job in the palace. He's a job that he probably had when the whole thing started. And for three years, he's just kept doing his job. He does it rather well. He basically organizes stuff. He's an administrator, makes the cogs of government go round. He's not bad at his job. Ahab recognizes that he's got Obadiah out looking for those damn horses. But I wonder that Obadiah might have also felt inadequate next to this big, scary prophet, Elijah. Prophets are always dramatic. In fact, in the Bible, they quite often have dramatic calls where God speaks to them through a burning bush or through a vision or whatever it was. Obadiah, well, there's no sign Obadiah had anything dramatic, had started off his life of faith. In fact, he says in verse 12, he says very simply to Elijah, I've worshipped the Lord since my youth. 
If you were to ask Obadiah for his testimony, I don't think he'd be telling you that something dramatic happened and he went forward at a Billy Graham rally and anything like that. He would be telling you that he was taken to Sunday school by his mum, that his grand taught him Bible stories and he just sort of got on with following God after that, day after day. The spirit didn't take him anywhere funny or strange. He wasn't fed by ravens. He just did what he thought God wanted him to do. Did Obadiah feel inferior? I suspect, I don't know for sure, but he might have done. When Elijah comes, his first thing that he says to Elijah is, what have I done wrong? And he goes on to say in verse 13, haven't you heard what I did? As if he felt in the presence of Elijah judged, not good enough. If he felt that his work somehow wasn't as valid as what Elijah did in all his dramatic confrontation with kings. And Elijah? Well, Elijah didn't value Obadiah. We know that much. When we get on to chapter 19, verse 10, you will find Elijah praying to God and saying, I've been really zealous for you, God. I've been serving you 100% and all the people have deserted you. They've killed all the prophets. I'm the only person left that worships you. Did he forget about Obadiah? Did he forget about the hundred prophets that Obadiah had had? In fact, God has to go on and remind Elijah there were actually 7,000 people who'd stayed faithful through this whole thing. He wasn't the only one. But Elijah, whatever his strengths were, was never a team player. But the thing is, God is a team creator. He calls people that are very different, whose situations are very different, who have different skills. He calls people who will do the big and the dramatic, and he calls people, well, who seem fairly ordinary. Obadiah's ministry might not have been that dramatic, but it was no less valuable. So I want to think about what we can learn from Obadiah. First of all, faithfulness in ordinary things really, really matters. It's sometimes harder to serve God in that way. If God calls you to do something that's very clear, become a minister, go on a mission field or whatever else it is, that's nice and clear cut. But sometimes it's harder simply to be faithful to God where you are, particularly if it's an environment that's not particularly God-friendly. People don't want to know. Martin Luther King said this, if I cannot do great things, I will do small things in a great way. You see, doing the day job faithfully matters. Raising those children, schooling them at home, teaching them something of God, doing the job that you do in society for God, being salt and light wherever you are, those little things are the things that build the kingdom. Elijah would confront Jezebel's murderous regime. But Obadiah quietly would thwart it. She was trying to kill the prophets. And Elijah would go and tell her to her face it was wrong and boldly speak the words of the truth of the Lord and bring judgment on the regime. 
But Obadiah would make sure what she was trying to do could never happen. He would obstruct the godless regime in his quiet way, saying nothing. Our society, in many ways, is sucking God out of everything. And the preachers of this world, the evangelists of this world, are called to speak out, to speak loudly. And that's not just me, that will be some of you, but all of us, every single Christian, in an office block, in a tower block, in raising a child, in caring for a neighbor, is called to do something that will thwart the godlessness of this society. For in our little acts, in our prayerful acts, in our word for God, in our loving of God, in our bringing the kingdom in small acts of love, we will change the world as salt and light. Sometimes that brings hard compromises as we try to work out how do we live in this world to transform it, but as part of it. We had a, a family movie night a couple of weeks ago, and we watched um, Schindler's List together. Now, if you've got young children and you're having a family movie night, I don't recommend Schindler's List. It's a film about the Holocaust. But it's a remarkable film. Oskar Schindler was a German industrialist in World War II. You may know the story. He didn't stand up to the Nazis. He didn't denounce them. He didn't join the war effort of the Allies or the resistance or anything like that. No, he carried on being a manufacturer, a businessman, a man who tried to make money, a man who even used Jewish forced labor in his factories. But somehow as he did that, he brought the light into the darkness because he began to value the workers that everything in the regime despised. He began to care about the people that the Nazis wanted to destroy, and he did everything in his power to save as many as possible until the Jewish state today recognizes him as one of the righteous Gentiles. How to be faithful to God in the midst of a godless society just by doing what is ordinary for you, for Oskar Schindler, it was running factories. For you, it'll be something else. One of the truths of the gospel is simply this. There's actually no such thing as an ordinary Christian. We're all called to serve just in different ways. The church consistently, through the ages, has tried to say, oh, there are extraordinary Christians that we really must look at. And every time it's tried to do it, the scripture comes up against us and says that's not the case at all. For a long time we said, they're saints, these special Christians that are close to God, saint this and saint that. But when you read the Bible, it says every Christian is a saint. Every single one is made holy by God. There are no special holy people. And then we called some of them priests. There are some people who have a special relationship with God who will bridge the gap between us and God, who will bring us the grace that is in God. But when you read the Bible, Peter himself will say every single Christian is a priest. Every single Christian in Jesus has a relationship directly with their Father that they don't need any other human being standing between them and him. We are saints and we are priests. And then we might say, well, there's prophets. They're special, aren't they? Like Elijah. Well, actually, even in this story, 
Elijah thought he was the prophet, and here's Obadiah. said, well, I've got a hundred other ones in caves. And when we come to the New Testament, it says on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, that your young men will see visions and your old men will have dreams. I will pour out my Spirit on all men and all women, and they shall prophesy. All of us, filled with the Holy Spirit, able to speak words of truth into the ordinary situations that we find ourselves in. God wants each of us simply to be extraordinary in the ordinary places that we are. To be priests, to be prophets, to be saints. I guess the place that Obadiah was was probably in the world of politics, wasn't he? He was one of the king's advisors, one of his people that made things happen. Difficult place to be trying to do the right thing, living with the compromises. I am so grateful for Christians that are called into politics today, Christian counselors, MSPs, MPs, in all parties that are able to bring something into the administration of our nations of the truth of the gospel. But I'm also grateful for Christians that are in education, that are in health, that are in industry, that are in the civil service, making a difference in all the places that they are. And perhaps most of all for Christians that are in the most influential place they possibly could be. The parents, the grandparents, and the neighbors. For we have a society that would teach our young people nothing of God. And we are able to thwart that godless agenda as we simply teach the children the truths of the gospel. For Obadiah, there would be sacrifices. What he did was dangerous, but more than that, just physically, he had to find the food for a hundred prophets. That can't have been difficult. That can't have been hard. Sorry, it can't have been easy, rather. It costs a lot of money just to feed for. But here's something that just struck me. He was feeding them food and water. That's exactly what God was doing for Elijah those three years as he hid in the wilderness by the brook with the widow. And so here was Obadiah, in a sense, being almost God to these hundred prophets, providing for them just as God was providing for Elijah. He was God's man providing not from ravens or miracles, but just from the ordinary things that he could find, the resources that he had. But the other thing about Obadiah was he had hope. Ahab and Jezebel were trying to create a world with no God. They were trying to create a world with no prophets, with no future of God, where they would wipe out the very memory of what God was about. But in their very palace, right under their noses, Obadiah worked a different agenda. He fed the prophets. He kept them alive. He hid them in caves that one day the rain would come. One day the regime would change. One day those hundred people would come out and speak the word of God to so many more people. Obadiah was planting something, investing something in a future that was yet to come for he had hope in the word of God. 
we too, as Christians, are given a hope. The kingdom is not here in one sense, but we are investing in the future that God will bring. We are investing in the justice. We are investing in the word of God being known again in our land. Just as we pray, as Obadiah might have prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done here on the earth as it is in heaven. And until it is, we will keep working, we will keep praying, we will keep being faithful in the ordinary places that we are. May God bless your workplaces as you bless them by your presence. May God bless your homes and your families as you bless them with your prayers and with your work day by day, hour by hour. May God bless the block you live in, the street you walk in, the phone calls you make. Be extraordinary for him in the ordinary places that you are for you have been made in Christ Jesus extraordinary people, saints, prophets, priests. Amen.